just been seated, but let me invite you to stand again for the reading of God's word this time. We are here not to hear the word of man, but the word of living God. We are in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light, sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us, did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we were awake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Thus far, the word of God, let us pray. Father, as we gather to worship you in spirit and truth, we pray that the same spirit who inspired Paul to write these words would attend to your worship even now, that you would, by your spirit, equip us to hear your word, bless the one who proclaims the word. Lord, we are all but mere men, and we need your grace and mercy that Christ to be glorified in our midst. And so we ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. Leon Morris, a commentator on First Thessalonians, says the church cannot expect to do its work effectively if leaders are not being loyally supported by their fellow Christians. Quoting from another commentary, we find these words, An excessive modesty prevents many ministers from calling attention to the sacred office they hold and to the respect with which it should always be regarded by those whom whom over they by those over whom they have oversight the world looks at ministers with contempt recent events involving great sins amongst ministers has only served to add fuel to the fire of derision there are thousands within the church who are completely ignorant of the minister's duties and his awful responsibilities children there's that word again awful we use it in the sense of awful. We think of awesome duties and responsibilities. We may have a vague or distorted notion of their duty towards these men who first lead them to Christ and continue for years instructing them in the truth of the gospel. Did, do you as members really understand your responsibilities to the minister? We'll only touch upon that lightly, only one point in this sermon, but hopefully it will serve something as a catalyst to consider what are your duties to the minister? There's a wonderful little booklet published by one of our reformed publishing houses uh, by a Puritan, if I remember right. I think it's John Engel James, the duty of minister, uh, the duty of 
church members to their ministers. And so it is. It's a challenge for ministers to touch on this topic. And ministers, though, they must not hesitate. You're even at the risk of being branded egotistical to speak on this subject. I confess it would be very easy to take up some other text. But since I'm a guest preacher, it is easier for me to proclaim these biblical truths to you than to my own congregation. And I find it prudent to come alongside your minister and herald what may not only be hard for him to say, but perhaps harder for you to hear from him. Nevertheless, all truth is profitable for God's people to hear. The church needs to be instructed on how to relate to their pastor. Paul was under no false uh, sense of modesty when he penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks forthrightly about the nature of the labors of the minister and the obligation of the members of the church to those who minister in the word and sacrament. The section that we're considering this evening flows from, flows along with a stream that Paul has set into motion. Beginning back in chapter 4, if you look, you see that Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brethren, sounds like a, a good Baptist preacher, right? Here he is, two chapters to go, and he says, Finally, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you abound, should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Notice that Paul says, finally. And yet that he goes on, there's more exhortations. In verse 9 he says, but concerning, you see these conjunctions, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. And then a little later in verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. And then moving forward, we see it again in chapter 5, but concerning the times and the seasons, that which I have just read to you. And then in verse 12, Paul says, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonished you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So this section that we're considering flows from that which precedes it because Christ is coming because there will most assuredly be a day of judgment. We are to live in preparedness. You see that in this portion of Paul's letter. So that at his coming, it will not overtake us with surprise like a thief does in the night. Paul even says that should not be the case for us because we're prepared. It echoes Jesus' parable about the servant who was slothful and not ready when the master came. Indeed, the point was that we should be diligent in preparing for the Lord's coming. And so what we find in Paul's letter here is all of this translates into normal everyday living. This, this isn't lofting thing, uh, lofty things. The gist of what Paul is talking about is how should we should live, how we should live every day. These, these responsibilities, uh, first as we'll see the, to the minister and then of the people of God to the minister, these are ordinary, everyday things in the life of the church. We're going to look at how to live then with respect to all elders, particularly though to those who minister into the word and how indeed they are. Worthy of double honor. But we're going to begin with point one, the distinctive duties that belong to the minister of the word. Now, most assuredly, this is an exhaustive, and Paul deals with this topic in other places, most particularly his letters to Timothy and to Titus. But what we have here is we have the minister, the minister who is ordained by God, and as Paul says, over you in the Lord. 
This is not by his own will. This is according to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, the king and the head of the church. He is over you in the Lord. And what we have here is the idea of rule. Scripture uses elsewhere. Paul uses the idea of an overseer from which we get the word episkopos or bishop, elder. We should note that this is a young congregation. The church in Thessalonica was young, uh, perhaps just a couple of years old, uh, maybe even even only months after Paul has been there. And yet they have officers and they are being exhorted about their officers. We find that in Acts 14.23 that Paul was in the habit and the practice to appoint elders in every church. And we must acknowledge this was an extraordinary time. Paul was moving uh, through the Gentile world. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. And he went preaching the gospel. The Spirit, with Christ's blessing, was bringing many into the church. And there was little time for training and equipping. And thus, the extraordinary gifts were still being exercised at the time. So that the people of God would be guarded and kept within the bounds of orthodoxy, even as the scriptures were being written. These were Gentile churches. They did not have the breadth and the depth of the history of the Old Testament. They did not have the writing of the prophets, and yet God made provision for them. And he made provision for this young congregation. They had elders. We're going to hear a little bit more about what type of elders these were a little later on. Thessalonica was not alone. This port city, a city of shipping and enterprise, Uh, God had blessed, the gospel had come, and many were converted, not a few of whom were noble women, Luke records. So Jesus Christ, you see his love, even for a young congregation, he provides them with ministers of the gospel. They have elders, under-shepherds of Christ, to be overseers, to be shepherds of their soul, to care for them. What we see then is that a minister has clearly defined duties. These duties are all joined into the one office, the office of elder. We, of course, we think of distinctive of those who minister into the word and those who rule. But those who minister to the world are also elders who rule. And they have duties joined up in this office. And we find that because there's a single definite article. It's not one or the other. It's a single that brings the two together, that these duties that Paul deals with here are one under the same. Elders, first then, are to labor. They are to labor. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you. It's interesting. Paul does not take an ecclesiastical word. Indeed, he takes the word from the common language of the period of time. And he gives ecclesiastical meaning. This, this word is it even connected to the men who worked on the docks, loading and loading and unloading ships. Their work was labor. Sweat bringing, back breaking labor. That's the word that Paul uses here. He speaks of toilsome work, difficult work. Have you ever thought about that? That the work that your minister does, a spiritual labor, ministering to the gospel, is laborsome. It's called, he's called upon to apply the word of God in concrete and specific situations. Warning you, admonishing those who are strained, helping those who are in need, and encouraging those who are discouraged. None of these are easy tasks. These are hard things. Think of doing this yourself. Some of you parents have some familiarity with this. Think of a whole flock, an entire congregation in need of such care. And then we begin to understand something of what the pastors must do all the time. It is their calling. It is their vocation. And it is hard work. And therefore, those who are called to the ministry should expect to do hard work. 
we can understand why Paul calls the church then to pray for him as an apostle at the end of this letter. He says, pray for me that there will be given a success for the gospel. But by implication, pray for your elders. Pray for them and their work. Pray for what they undertake to do. Calvin notes on this text, John Calvin. He says, it follows then that all idle bellies, I love that word, all idle bellies are excluded from being ministers of the word. And then to all elders, he says, uh, he admonishes them. Uh, or to, it's their duty to admonish those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, the congregation. It is the minister's responsibility to admonish. Now, that's not just the wagging of the figure, finger. Uh, there's a place for the rebuke. Uh, but this admonishment here is more the idea of uh, faithful biblical instruction. Uh, the word carries the idea of put in mind. Put it in, call it to your mind. Make you aware. Put in mind. To remind and to call God's people to obey Him. That is, to obey Jesus Christ, who is the King and the Head of the Church. The requirement then is that the minister must be faithful in dispensing the Word of God. We've been mentioning that right along, but I just comment right here at this point. It's the Word of God that men are to, uh, the Word, are to minister. It's the Word of God that they're to bring. They're not to traffic in Tolkien's Chronicles of Narnia. Or C.S. Lewis, I'm sorry, uh, J.R. Tolkien's uh, trilogy, or C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, or periodicals of the day. Certainly a minister may draw on things for illustrations and so forth, but we're not here to preach the books of men. A minister is to preach the Word of God. The authoritative preach uh, the Word of God. This morning I'm preaching from John in chapter 16 and how it is that the Holy Spirit, Jesus in the upper room, promises these apostles, these 11 men who remain with him in the upper room, that the Holy Spirit will come to guide them as they remember the things that Christ has done. And then to give them the very word of God. They know many things, but the Holy Spirit will give them that which should be inscripturated. And then to guard them in that whole process to the end then that Jesus Christ to be glorified. And so it is the minister uh, delivers this word that the Holy Spirit has given through the apostles, that he guided them in the process so that we would have the word of God that would bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. The minister of the gospel is to traffic in the word of God alone. It's very remarkable that um, I don't think I thought about this before, though I've read John 16 many times. But Jesus tells the, the uh, church, through the apostles, that the Holy Spirit doesn't have any original thoughts. He said the Holy Spirit takes of that which is mine. And, before, and then Jesus goes on to say, and what the Father has is mine. He has given it to me. And so what the Holy Spirit has given us in the Word of God is from God the Father and God the Son by and through the Holy Spirit. And that's what we must hear from ministers of the gospel in the pulpit week by week. So we see the minister is accountable to God for his faithfulness. The minister's work is important, strenuous, hard work. And the minister's work is for an eternal and spiritual good. It's for God's people. It's to labor on your behalf, to admonish you, to see that you are built up in the Lord. Indeed, the warning then is for ministers. It's for these things that we will give an account. Now, in a similar degree, not the same as the minister of the word, it is so for elders too. Elders who labor alongside of and with ministers as fellow elders also 
are to traffic in the Word of God. We know in the qualifications for an elder, he is to be apt to teach, able to teach, to have the giftedness to teach. And what he must teach from also must be, and only must be, the Word of God. Well, there's certainly much more that we could say on this topic, but we'll move along to the second point. The duties to the minister of the Word. That is, the duties, the responsibilities of the people of God to the minister that God has set over them. Paul found it necessary to exhort and encourage these Christians to do many things. We looked at some of those back in verse 1 of chapter 4. They're exhorted to walk more and more in sanctification. And then in verse 9, to abound still more and more in love for one another. These are exhortations. Uh, These are imperatives, commands given to them. Minister in this church, and like so many other, um, may not, uh, I'm sorry, think of the church in Thessalonica. The ministers uh, of the word in that church were probably not high-born men. It would have been because, uh, again, we're thinking of Acts 17, where uh, Luke records the establishment of this church. Uh, there's the contrast. Not a few noble women were added to the church, which is to say many. And by implication, there seems to be there's no or very few noble men. That is to be you know, well-educated, uh, socially aloof and aloft in their societal status. And so you would have probably had men who were their elders, uh, maybe even their minister who came from the docks, came from unloading cargo, and yet called out by Christ, given gifts, and then given as a gift to the church. They were gifts from Christ to labor in this church. And Paul then urges the people of God to acknowledge their minister and their work. It's interesting that when Paul urges them, this is not an exhortation. This does not have the weight of an imperative, uh, the command. No, Paul is, in, you could say, digging deeper. He's, he's going more into our hearts. He's drawing from our hearts that we would render of something more to the minister of God. It's this that we should render the minister of God. It's, it's not a forced thing. It's not something that is to be demanded. And indeed, something that ministers should not demand. These things, what Paul is getting at, they flow from the heart. From affections first and foremost for Christ, and then for his word, and then for the one who is the minister of the word. That we should recognize that one, or those ones. And so Paul says, we urge you, or beseech you. It completes in two parts here, that we uh, would have this uh, encouragement given. First, it is to recognize, and secondly, it is to esteem highly in love. Quoting from John Calvin again, or at least referring to him, I don't, this isn't a direct quote. But he says, as for the kingdom of God, for as the kingdom of God is lightly esteemed among men, as it is lightly esteemed, or at least not esteemed suitably to its dignity, there it follows from this the contempt of pious teachers. Brothers and sisters, you know this in our day. The word of God is despised. The church is increasingly mocked. And therefore, it will follow, it is necessary then, that the ministers of the word, who once in, in many communities, perhaps most of the communities across our nation in years past, would have been one of the most respected men in town. More likely, it would have been the most educated man in town. It would have been an upright citizen, someone that we all could have respected. But it's not so anymore. 
ministers are despised. And so it is that we expect, we see it happening in our day. That there's increasing contempt for God, for his word, and for those who minister in the word. And then we add to that the, those who perhaps were faithful ministers, but men who were there in a very public sense, ministers of the word, who have now fallen, bringing derision on the lofty office. Calvin goes on to make the point that must not be missed. Since faithful ministers are offended at the lack of esteem for their office, they see themselves despised, and Christ, who sent them, is not honored. And there's a danger of them becoming indifferent. So your encouragement, the esteem and the love and encouragement you're to give to minister is very necessary. I would argue it's even more necessary in our day when the world is against the minister of the word of God. There's a danger that the, that the minister, he is but a man, uh, could become discouraged and not give himself wholly to that hard labor. After all, what's the point? So few seem to care. Your minister needs to know you care. That you demand from him the faithful preached word of God. Regardless of the world, word, the world and what the world wants, you want the whole counsel of God set forth before you. So it is that you should and you must. I can't say must, it's not a command, is it? What Christ is saying through Paul here is that there's this tremendous encouragement to esteem and to love and admire the man of the word. God also, this is the sober part, on just grounds inflicts his vengeance upon the world by depriving it of faithful ministers of the word. Our denomination keeps statistics and you know, we, we hear how a, a denomination, this is the PCA, was once growing and at pretty phenomenal rates has plateaued and to some degree decreasing. And that's not unique. What's remarkable is we're not decreasing at the rate of others. But if you look at some of the, the mainline churches who have abandoned the gospel long ago and those who stand in their pulpits, if we'll broaden the definition of that word, um, they're not faithful ministers of the word of God. They're not preaching the word of God. They're doing something else. We used to live in North Carolina and our next door neighbor was in such a mainline denomination. And after much encouragement, she came and worshipped with us. Well, she was present with us in worship one Sunday. We had it in our home afterwards, and we're visiting around the table. She said, can I ask you a question? So I noticed you didn't tell any jokes in your message. Uh, you didn't have any stories that you talked about. Why? I love those questions. That's a wonderful question. And so it's because my responsibility is to preach the Word of God. Indeed, anyone who is called as a minister of the Word of God is to preach the Word of God. But that's not what the world wants And so God often visits nations, even churches, with a, with a famine of the word. I, I've, my mind fails me, but there's one of the prophets where the prophecy from God through the prophet was that there would be a famine of the word as a judgment upon the people of God, that there would be limitation, there would be a lack of preached word. You think about that period after Malachi utters the last prophecy. You know what the last word in Malachi is? Judgment. And then there's 400 years of silence. And then John the Baptist comes, the last of the Old Testament prophets, to introduce the prophet, the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, the incarnate God come to save his people from their sin. What a mercy, what a tender mercy 
that God should do that for a people and to the humanity who is despised and rejected of him. Brothers and sisters, we live in a time when it may very well be that we'll see an increasing depriving of the church from faithful ministers of the word. So it is Calvin adds to this portion, he says, it's not so much for the advantage of ministers themselves, this doing this encouragement and highly esteeming our ministers, it's not so much for the ministers themselves as for the advantage of the whole church, that those who are faithful in the ministerial labor should be held in high esteem. First, there's to be what I would call an intelligent, intelligent acknowledgement of those who labor in the word over you. And we mentioned this translated put in mind for admonishing. Paul intimates the why of the problem, uh, why this honor is less than it should be. It's because the labor of the minister is not taken into consideration. The minister, Paul is speaking of the great toil, the work that the minister gives himself to. Why do you have... Why do you have, or who do you, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, I know what I'm trying to say here. Sometimes you get your words confused on the, on the page. Which of you understand what a minister goes through? I've been in the ministry 22 years now. Do you know that there are nights when your minister never sleeps? He lays awake thinking of you, maybe one person in particular because some situation, but maybe many. He's awake for night thinking of you and your situation, praying and petitioning God, perhaps for the soul of a wayward youth or a wayward spouse. There's an agony and a wrestling that comes upon the soul of the minister of the God. Sometimes it's because the text that is before him that week, maybe the next morning, is a difficult text. Because it's hard to understand, or maybe because it's so weighty. Even as the prophets had to do hard and difficult things, ministers of the word often had to bring hard messages. Who of you knows the, know the countless hours that a minister spends in preparing to preach the word? The prayers for your growth and grace. Who is it that searches the scriptures to answer your troubles, your situation? Who is it that calls other faithful men and engages them on the phone for counsel, for encouragement, for insight, so that he can stay the course and be faithful? Again, you see the need to pray for your minister, to esteem them highly for their work's sake. So often the minister is the backbone of the community. And just so often he's taken for granted. No one sees the depth of travail for the saints. Only God knows the weight of the burden that a pastor carries. And it's a comfort and encouragement to a pastor to know that he does not carry it alone. Fellow elders, but Christ carries that burden. Christ has come before the minister. And he's with the minister and he goes with him. That's we speak of, of, of elders or shepherds being under shepherds. Christ has not gone off to a distant land. He's reigning on high and he has sent the Holy Spirit to be a, a paraclete, a, a comforter, a present helper in our lives for all of us. And certainly the minister needs that. Pray for 
your minister, that the Holy Spirit minister to his heart in ways that he's aware that he'd be encouraged in his labors. Paul knew these things, and so he speaks boldly. And he boldly confronts, and he boldly and in the strongest terms tells this young congregation to know their minister, know his labors, to acknowledge what he is doing in their midst and for them. Another thing we should know is that there, should, there is to be a superlative loving regard for those who labor in the word over you. Notice Paul says to esteem them highly in love. Highly in love. This is not, you know, backslapping, you know, sort of things. There's all kinds of ways for a congregation to show this superlative of love to the minister. In my first congregation, there was one of the elders' wives that just, she just had a gift from the Lord to be an encouragement. Uh, it was clearly of God. You know, I didn't spend a lot of time around her. She's busy raising, I don't know, things, six kids. I'm not up to uh, 10, 11 kids. And, but the Lord just put it on her heart when to give me a note, an encouraging note. And it just spoke to the situation. That was such a blessing. That's, that's something. There's, she loved her pastor. She loved the minister of the word. It was such a blessing to receive those notes in such a timely manner. I don't know if you do this, you know, after the minister preaches. Uh, some people feel compelled to say, great message, Pastor. More often than not, I don't hear that that often, but more often than not, if you say that to me, I'm going to say, why was it great? What did you get out of it? What are you taking away? Do you know when you can answer those questions, that's very encouraging to your minister. It shows that you esteem him highly for his work's sake. You were paying attention and you drew something. You went away with something from God. The man's just the messenger. But we cannot forget the man because he's God's man sent. A congregation should have a deep, warm affection uniting them to their pastor. Of course, it's a two-way street. You know, it's compelling to the minister that he, that his flock should know that he loves them. I last pastored in southwest Virginia. I had a fellow elder, and he used to remind me of that. He wasn't taking me to task because I didn't love my people. In some sense, he was encouraging me because he saw that I did. But he said something pretty close like this. He said, Pastor, you know, if God's people know that you love them, you could stand up in front of them and hold up an orange and say, this is an apple. And they're going to want to believe you because they, they, they want you to love them. Now, they might challenge your whether your vision's good or something, but you, you see the point. When, when a congregation knows that their minister loves them, they want to hear him. But the congregation needs to let the minister know that he is loved by them. That's what Paul is saying. That there should be this affection, an intelligent affection, a superlative of love, recognizing them for what they do. As we mentioned earlier about the minister and the word, what is it that the minister does? He doesn't just bring out platitudes, a happy talk. I know there are ministers that do that. But a faithful minister of the word is opening the word of God. He's explaining the word of God. He's illustrating the word of God. He's applying the word of God to you. That's their work's sake. And if you love Christ, you, you love that and you love that you have such a man and you love that man whom God has given you. You see, this isn't a cold, intellectual esteem. There are unconverted men who may appreciate the intellectual qualities of your pastor, 
I don't know Pastor Ventura tremendously well. I know more of him vicariously through others and reputation. Um, but my perception, he's a very intelligent man. And, and it could be that there are those in the community who have a respect for him because of his intelligence. That's good insofar as it goes, but if that's as far as it goes, that's not good enough. You know, Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest preachers that we've ever had in our country. He was also, excuse me, he was also one of the greatest intellectuals that we had in our country. You know what Jonathan Edwards is remembered for today? Do you know there's a study center down in New Haven at Yale? There's a whole floor, I think. I don't think it's a whole building, but a whole floor dedicated to Jonathan Edwards. And there's centers internationally around the world where they're still studying Jonathan Edwards. There's so much there. The man was brilliant. And indeed, there, there are many who esteem him highly for his intellects. That's not what Paul's looking for. It's for their work's sake in the Word that they minister to you on God's behalf. Bringing the word of God to you. They ministry the word for the glory of Christ and the benefit of the church. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 7, something very similar to what we find here. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Here's other exhortations. Whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. You say these men are examples for you. Follow their example. Think of a way to illustrate this. Uh, John L. Giardo was a faithful Southern Presbyterian minister back before the Civil War in Charleston. He was a pastor to a church of slaves. That was his congregation. And he was a man who very much loved his congregation. And indeed, he was very much loved by his congregation. He had a powerful ministry there, loving and gracious. He returned uh, to this congregation after a season away. As a matter of fact, when he was being called, I remember, to Columbia Seminary in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, the, the Southern Presbyterian Church is a denominational seminary. They were calling him away to teach there, and the, 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 the members of his congregation wept over his departure. Like one of my professors is a Southern Presbyterian Church historian, and I remember him recounting in some detail when John L. Giardo came back to this congregation that loved him greatly. Esteemed him highly. And the joyous occasion of the return it was. It's what we should have. It's what we should want. It's what we should desire. And I don't know your congregation well. Maybe that's an evidence. Maybe you're already doing that. Well, if that's the case, then like Paul's earlier exhortations, do so more and more. Do so more and more. Perhaps you're not one who has been engaged in that. You Maybe you've been here a little while. You just keep your spot in the pew and kind of round and looking on. It's an exhortation to get involved. Live in the life of the church. Come to know your elders. Let them get to know you. Because the ministry of the word will be even richer when you sit under it week by week. So there's this lesson here that the people of God can never profit. I guess I'm this first time introducing it, but this is the lesson. Here's the takeaway. The people of God can never profit under a minister. If they have not learned to respect him. That's something that's true for husbands in the household. You know, men want their wives to respect them. They want them to submit to them. You know, Paul tells wives to respect their husbands. But he tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know, men, we know as husbands, if we're doing that, 
then usually, there are exceptions, usually our wife is ready to submit and ready to respect and, and to be the help that God has appointed her to be. There's a similar reality to that in the life of the church, because marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. Well, let's look at one last point, the duty of all in the body of Christ. We read the very tail end of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. This is an imperative. It's a duty of every member and the ministers. Be at peace among yourselves. Peace is a condition of peace with God. You cannot have peace with one another if you are not at peace with God. And the only way to be at peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul writes of in 2 Corinthians 5, where he's talking about that we have been reconciled to God. We have peace with God. And he has given to us a ministry of reconciliation. That we should be the means and instruments whereby others would be reconciled to God. Because our normal state is to be at war with God. As sinners, we are rebels. We shake our fist against God. Oh, you may never raise your fist to heaven. There are those that do. But all your conduct may suggest or may evidence that you're not at peace with God. And you can't be at peace with others if you're not at peace with God. You look at the world. Look at our nation. Look at politics. Look at the families in disarray. What's the problem? I think fundamentally, as we would have to say, it's because men and women, boys and girls, are not at peace with God. We're in the church. That's our confession. That's our profession. That we have peace with God. That we have been reconciled to God Almighty through the Lord Jesus Christ. For that was the purpose for Christ's coming. He came into the world to save sinners. The only way we could be saved is the problem our sin had to be reckoned, reckoned with. And Jesus went to the cross for our sin. That was the cost of peace with God. Christ died to save us. And to bring us to God. My friends, you can't be at peace with God just because you believe. Or because you're spiritual. Or because you got faith. Now I'm mocking the world because those things are all worthy of being mocking. There's no hope in those. Salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It is faith in Christ alone that will make you at peace with God. You must be dependent upon the completed work of Christ as well as his perfect record of obedience to speak on your behalf. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that becomes yours because you're united to Christ by faith. And so that's Paul's assumption. That's why he writes, be at peace among yourselves. Now, not all the churches were like that. Corinth, you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians lately? That church... And we might say it didn't know much about peace. They suffered with a great deal of strife, divisions, factions. Indeed, there's a great deal of evidence that that congregation was what I would call a mixed multitude. There were those who believed and those who didn't. And that's okay. We want the unconverted to be under the preached word, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The preached word of God, because Paul goes on to say, how can they hear without a preacher? How beautiful are the nasty feet of him who preaches good news. Corinth was a mixed multitude. That's, there's evidence of that too in Paul's letter to Thessalonica. I mentioned earlier the high-born women and probably their elders, maybe even their ministers, were you know, uneducated dock workers. And yet Christ had given them gifts, thinking of Ephesians 4, and they had given them as gifts to the church 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. We do the work of ministry, all of us. Those whom God has gifted and given as gifts are to equip us for that. And it seems to be from what Paul has written to the church in Thessalonica that uh, there is strife within. And thus, this is an exhortation. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Stop quarreling. They had troubles. Um, You remember, if you read the book of Acts, that Paul left Philippi, if you remember right, and he goes to Thessalonica. The Jews stirred up trouble, and so he went on. He's in Thessalonica for a while. Why did he have to leave? Well, the Jews found out where he was at, and they came and they agitated in that city too, and then he goes on to Berea. And so there's very likely that there are those who have come into the church. They were there to stir up and drive Paul off, and they're still there. A Jude, as he opens his little epistle, he talks about those who have, I think the language in the Greek is the idea, it reminds me of like a servant. They have slithered into your midst. Paul has to tell the church of the elders at Ephesus, and the last time he sees them, he warns them that there will be wolves raised up amongst their midst. This is an ever-present problem. And that brings us back to some of the work of the elders. Even as Paul exhorted the elders, watch out for wolves. You have to be alert for those who come in, stirring up strife. I don't know that I've ever done this, but I'm thinking the Proverbs says, rebuke a fractious man once, twice, and then have nothing to do with him. That's what we should do. Sounds pretty cold, but when you consider the strife that comes from those who are opposition to the gospel, they're ultimately instruments of Satan. Paul, I mean, God in the Proverbs, Proverbs 6 says, there are six things that the Lord hates, yes, even seven, that are an abomination to him. Proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. That's contrary to peace, is it not? A heart that devises wicked plans. Mm, that's not about peace. Feet that are swift to run to evil. A false witness who lies in one who sows discord among the brethren. That's right in the church. God hates it. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. Well, we are to cultivate peace within the church, and I close with this. How is it that we do that? I have often referred to two portions of Matthew's gospel, one from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and another one later on in Matthew 18. But in Matthew 5, Jesus says to us, he's talking to the apostles, they represent the church there, this is a timeless uh, instruction, a, a commandment. He says, if you are aware that you have sinned against your brother, Matthew 5, 23, you've come to worship, and you're mindful, leave your gift at the altar. You sin, stop your worship, leave your gift, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Return to worship. Imagine if we did that. If every time you walked through those doors, there was peace amongst everybody in the flock. That's what Christ requires. So you sin, you go. Then in Matthew 18, he says, your brother sinned against you. And you know what he says? You go. You go and you try to deal with it. He goes on. He won't hear you. You take others. He won't hear you. You take it to the church. It becomes a matter of church discipline. But you see what's happening? If we have sin, and of course if there's sin between members of the church, there cannot be peace, at least between those two. And if it's allowed to fester, it spreads. But what Jesus has said, if we sin, we should meet each other on the way. 
the sinner and the one who has sinned against. And if we would practice that, there'd be much more peace in the church. And if when we get together, take you from Matthew 18 and we're having our time resolving it, get wise, spiritual, godly men and women say, help us to resolve this. Well, I've implied this, but let's consider the lesson from this last point. Peace is essential. It's an essential condition for the success of the Christian work. We need faithful ministers for the success. We need a congregation who esteems those faithful ministers for there to be a success. And we need to have peace amongst ourselves for the success of the gospel. So we've considered the distinct duties belonging to the minister, to the members of the congregation, to the minister, and the duties of all. All of these things are co-joined. Is not God good that he has written with such clarity through the Apostle Paul? We need to hear these things. And we need to go and do them. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we ask your blessing on that which we have heard. Not for our glory, but for the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, all things will be for his glory. But indeed, also for our good. For the good of the church. For the building up of the church. For the success and the increase of the gospel. Oh, God, bless us to have faithful ministers and bless us to esteem and to love them. Bless them in their labors. And Lord, help us all to live at peace with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.